This is the UK House Builder and Developer from Good to Great series with Gerard Ball, Managing Director of Human Capital Group, helping you build your UK house building teams and businesses fast. We find the top 15% of talent in the market by harnessing the power of big data, 24-7, 365 digital automation platforms and inbound strategies. Leveraged by 20 years successful mid to senior level recruitment experience. In this podcast recorded before the advent of coronavirus, Gerard talks to Group MD of Ainsco Strategic Land, Rachel Ainsco. Rachel gives a valuable insight into the complex nature of what a land promoter does, the evolving shape of the land promotions market, how they work with landowners to help secure planning, and how that all relates to the house builders in the UK today. A big welcome to the UK House Builder and Developer Good to Great series. Just for the listeners, Rachel heads up Ainsco Strategic Land, or ASL is what we'll call them throughout the rest of this episode, if that's okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Which is a land promotions company. Now, I'll be honest, Rachel, most of my experience and most of the listeners' experience and most of the guys come from residential development companies and house builders i'm sure most of the people know what you do but in your own words could you could you just give us an outline of what a land promotions company actually does yeah of course so i mean in very simple terms we take land through planning to deliver effectively sort of oven ready sites to the development industry so a mixture of sites that we've either bought ourselves or more commonly now land that we're promoting on behalf of a landowner via promotion agreement. We get the planning and then sell it on to the house builder. So um, ASL, how did you guys become involved in land promotions? So basically my dad, Martin Ainsco, had an Ainsco crane hire which he grew with his two brothers and sold out in 2007. And although he's the first to say, you know, I'm not a property man, he sort of by default had ended up in land and property to some extent Mm -hmm. because he owned loads of depots across the country. So he'd had, I suppose, one in particular that he didn't need as a depot anymore. He got planning for residential, supermarket, car showroom and I'm not sure we'll ever quite repeat the deal that he did, unfortunately, with a belter. But at that point, thought, you know what? This is great. There's money to be made. When he sold out in 2007, he obviously mm. had cash to invest, wasn't ready to retire, wanted to set up a number of smaller businesses. And that's when he brought a team on board and set up ASL. Before we move on to kind of where the company was, let's just look at the company at the moment. In terms of where do you operate sort of geographically and, and, and can you give us an idea of the size of the business? We're based in the northwest near Manchester in, in Lee, which is Wigan, but we have sites all over the country. So at the moment we are as far north as Durham and then we're down in sort of Swindon, Oxfordshire, near Bristol and, 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 and everywhere in between. So spread across the country, we've got about 20 projects on the books. And we're trying to grow from there. So, and scale wise, it's generally we work on projects about 100 units upwards. So, if it's in a really high value area, we might do something a bit smaller, let's say 50, 60, 70. But generally, mm. because more often than not, we're acting 
for a landowner as a promotion partner and therefore we're taking a percentage of the proceeds it needs to be a big enough site that it's sort of worth our while shall we say because obviously it's high risk with what we do and then kind of just the size of the team eight of us at the moment so how did you become involved in the, the family business I mean, I joined in 2011. I'd actually worked for my dad being like years. I'd worked through my summers beforehand to sort of get a feel of the business. And although he's has had a lot of business success, he's not got any qualifications to his name. So he was very much, I want you involved in the business. When are you, when are you starting work and stopping school? That sort of chat. <laughs> On the other side, I was at a private school where literally every other person in the year was going to uni. You know, I was fortunate I did very well at school, had good grades, and teachers would be like, if I ever talked about not going to uni, it was like, what? Why would you? <laughs> you know, that would be such a waste. So it was a bit of a challenge knowing what to do, but I was equally really conscious that I had this opportunity that I didn't want to waste and I didn't want to go to uni sort of for the sake of it if I could potentially miss an opportunity. So at that point, I said, right, I'll. Uh, do you a deal, Dad, and I'll have a gap year. And he nearly fell off his seat. But I was like, no, no. I will work for 12 months in the business. And if I like it, I'll stay. But if I don't, then I want to go on and do whatever I want and not be sort of pressured to be part of the family business. So he was happy with that. I joined literally a week after, straight after my A-levels. And I was very, very fortunate because my biggest fear was to be sort of have a job, a role invented for me because I was the boss's daughter. And at the time, there was a lady about to go on maternity leave. So I was very fortunate to get involved at a time when I had a proper role to take on, sort of, you know, get myself to grips with the role. So I started not actually within ASL, within another company within the group. Basically, the, the family owned some industrial estates and I managed the tenants, did the leases, dealt with, you know, like billing utilities, that sort of thing. So I did that for a couple of months, which was fine and very good to sort of get me in and, mm. and, and get me to get to grips with things. But I, I probably soon learned that it was a bit samey, shall we say. And then at that time, I started getting involved with the land business as well, which was a bit more exciting, uh, if I can say that land business is exciting. But there was more variation each day. And so probably within a few months of being with the business, I then moved over to the land business, into strategic land as the land buyer. While I worked very closely with the land director at the time, the planning director. So I had a lot of exposure from a, from day one, really, on acquisition, sales, planning. I worked closely with the FD in terms of trying to get to grips with the numbers. So I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to get stuck in from day one with everything, really, and, 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 and get experience in all elements of the business. And as a result, was able to progress pretty quickly and I think I became one director in 2013, which is ridiculous, really. But, you know, it, it worked. And at that time, to be honest, my role didn't change massively. I just assumed more responsibility and, 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 and evolved from there. And then just as the, the land buyer, just so I understand, are, are you out meeting the, the landowners? And the yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, quite a lot of our sites come from agents. So... It was a lot of meeting with agents and relationships with agents to make sure that when their landowner clients came to them and said, you know, I've got a piece of land with potential, what should I do? And they take it to market to a number of potentially house builders and promoters that were on that list uh, and that we get to bid and hopefully interview and tie sites up. So a mixture of 
schmoozing agents and also landowner FaceTime and, and, and trying to get the deals that way. And now you're heading up the, the show as such. I think I probably bought my first shares not long after becoming land director. I decided, look, this is something I really want to do and uh, mm-hmm. sort of my way forward and I want to make this my baby. So I was very fortunate when 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 my dad sold out, he put some money aside for, for all of his children and I was able to utilize some of that to buy shares from him. And then again, over time, just bought more and more, either through monies that, that I had or quite a bit was from you know, paying in percentage of future profits. So I think I took the majority share and became Group MD in 2017. Yeah, so about three years ago now. And then when you look at the company where it was when you joined and where it is today, how's the company evolved? In terms of, we've, you know, we've grown numbers of projects, number of people, profitability. We are fortunate to now have a healthy balance sheet, which took a while. So when I got involved, we had quite a lot of sort of legacy debt, which although that was family debt and family money, it was still, you know, loans that the business had taken and, and hadn't paid back. Because if you think about when you set up a business like this, it's cost, cost, cost before you can make any revenue. You know, the projects were talking of take probably on average five years to turn around into actual cash. So right. it was past years of, of costs without revenue uh, and then, you know, some revenue, but it, it was taking all those projects actually needed delivering. So mm. I remember when, you know, looking at the numbers years ago, thinking like, oh my God, how am I ever going to have paid all this money off? It, you know, it seemed mm. like a pretty huge mountain to get over. And we're in a place now where we have delivered on those projects. We've paid back all that money. We mm. operate completely on our own cash reserves now. And that's probably what I'm most proud of today is, is to get to have got to that position because it seemed like quite a mountain <laughs> given right. where we were at, uh, in the early days. In terms of you've just seen your processes and your protocols of taking a, you know, a piece of land through the planning procedure, has that really tightened up or...? Uh, yeah, I mean, you've always got to be flexible because every project's different. You can't, it's not a tick box exercise, but certainly, you know, we are much more process driven than we ever have been before. And to be honest, that's not just me, that's the team that we've brought in on board. We've got a new land director last year who's a lot more organized than I am. And he helps with that massively. So yeah, we, we you know, everybody's roles are much more defined than they ever have been before. Everyone knows what they're doing, what the responsibilities are. And therefore, as you know, day to day as a business, we're in a much better position than we were. As I say, that, that that's down to the team as a whole, certainly not just me, but it's something that has evolved over time. Yeah. In terms of the future of ASM, I'm, I'm talking the three to five years rather than maybe the bigger picture. What are the plans for the business? So, I mean, we've... 19 projects as it stands, very nearly 20 with one in legals that's due to go through any day now. The current aim is to get to 25 projects before the end of this year and hopefully then 30 projects by the end of next year, which bearing in mind, obviously, we've got sales forecasts for this year and next year. There's a lot of sites to tie up. So it's going to be a challenge because the market is extremely competitive. So tying up land is, is tough at the moment, but we're we're on track with where we need to be. And although it's challenging, I think with the team we've got, it's achievable. So we're giving it a very good go. Just so that I'm 
clear how how it works internally. So for a you know a, a recruitment company or search company, a really KPI driven, you make X amount of calls. You I don't know. You send X amount of emails. You post a certain amount of adverts, and you get certain results back. Is it the same in land promotions? Not really. I mean. It- the way that land comes to us is sort of twofold. So as I said, there's a lot via agents and that's more about establishing relationships and track record because as soon as you've done a deal with an agent, if you then deliver and their client is happy with you and so they don't look silly for having got you on board, then they'll happily get you on board for other clients again. So it's very much to do with once you've actually delivered and your track record that leads to future work. We've got landowners that we've got I've got multiple pieces of land and we've done multiple deals with them or they've got friends with land and we've been passed on via recommendation. So a lot of it happens sort of organically that way. But also, yeah, we do target landowners ourselves. So searching areas, doing land studies, working out where are the best sites, literally just writing to people, knocking on their doors. And in that sense, I suppose to some extent, yeah, the more you do, you'll get a percentage. It's a bit random. I couldn't say we know exactly what that is, but you do have to sort of throw quite a lot of mud and eventually some will stick. <laughs> it's a lot harder if you think about it. If somebody's already gone to their agent, their land agent, yeah. and said, look, I, I think I've got potential, some land with potential, what do you think? They're a step ahead. If you write to someone cold who's no idea, who are often, let's be honest, farmers, you know, they'll be like, hang on a minute, who are you? Can I possibly trust you? So it it takes it, it's a much bigger hurdle to get over, and it takes a lot longer to tie someone up that way. On the other hand, though, you're not going necessarily competitively, provided they don't then try and find a land agent and get other bids. If they'll just do a deal with you, then generally you can tie the land up on terms that are a bit more favourable because you're not being squeezed by an agent. Uh, but yes, yeah, right. it's, it's a mixture. In terms of the marketplace and how you've seen that evolved since your time within AFL? I mean, massively. If you think about it, we set up in the very end of 07, which was right at the beginning of the crash. So a lot of our competitors at the time were perhaps struggling a little, had less cash Mm. potentially. Also, there was a lot of landowners or businesses with land who were trying to liquidate their assets. So we started by buying land, predominantly also because my dad had probably never heard of a promotion agreement. So it was, you know, we went out to try and buy land. That's what we did. And that has evolved massively in that the amount of sites that we get in to actually look at as a purchase now is, you know, very few. It is predominantly landowners who want to sit in and maximize the value of the land and can afford to do so now because they're not as Mm -hmm. cash trapped, shall we say. And so we're doing far more promotion agreements than we are land purchases. That's just seems to be the way the market's gone. Absolutely. I mean, planning obviously changes all the time and has changed throughout my career. You know, I remember when the first MPPF came out in 2012 and there was a flurry of activity with us and house builders, everybody making the most of the presumption in favor. And that was great. And everybody had a great mm-hmm. few years getting planning probably quicker than, than we had before. That slowed down massively. It's been a tough few years planning wise particularly with having such an unstable government for so long that there's been lots of crazy appeal decisions and, you know, uber cautious. So hopefully that will now change. Obviously now we've got some stability, things will pick up. 
and we're quite positive about that as is the industry I think generally that hopefully you know I think there's a, a white paper expected soon so let's see what that says but I think probably the biggest change is just as the market has got stronger generally there's been a you know so many promoters around now so you know when we used to bid on things years and years ago we'd be bidding potentially against house builders for option agreements but there really weren't that many promoters going for things we used to win the majority of what we'd bid on whereas now you know we can be bidding against 20 30 other promoters and and you know you'll go to an interview and sometimes try and explain what a promoter is and the benefits and they'll be like we've only gone to promoters like shut up it's exceptionally competitive and that, and, and that's making it tough so that's probably the biggest change we've seen why why do you think so many new companies are coming into the marketplace i think if you look at obviously the margin that can be made on land if it's a piece of a green field Obviously, every market area is different, but let's say it's worth 10 grand an acre as agricultural land, and it might be you know, a million pounds an acre more in a really strong area if it's got planning. So I think people see that margin and see the amount that can be made. And when times are good and land's selling well, give it a go. Perhaps not always re- realizing how difficult it is and how much money it takes and how, how hard the process and long-winded it is. So I think it's probably just seeing the dream and when it's strong, people want to give it a go, probably think it's a lot easier than it really is. And over time, I assume if we have a dip in the market or whatever, there'll probably be a a reduction in the number of promoters again. But, you know, and also from a landowner's perspective, it's a difficult one, this, because most of the audience are probably house builders. But there's a a lot of benefits to a promotion agreement for a landowner. And land agents are much more aware of that than they ever were. So as a result, they often will push for a promotion agreement, which, again, opens up the market for more promotion. And then, you know, just let's focus on the landowner at the moment. There must be a difference between a good and a, a bad land promotions company I'd, I'd obviously expect you to sell asl but <laughs> for somebody in the market what would they need to be wary of when you know when, when dealing with a, a land promotion company as a landowner or do you mean more as a house builder buying land from a promoter we'll flip onto the house builder in a second but just as a, a landowner at the like, yeah i suppose it's making sure You've got a trustworthy party. It's relationships more than anything. You know, as I said before, these projects are long term. You know, they don't happen overnight. So you're going to have to work with this party for multiple years, probably. So if you don't get on, if the communication isn't there, you know, if you're not confident that the team will be the same and you'll have, you know, consistency in who's actually managing the process, then that would be a worry. And I think fundamentally, and this is probably the same for you know, a landowner or, or a house builder, it, it's track record. As I said, there are a lot of new entrants into the market who I'm, I'm not saying aren't doing a good job, but might not actually have delivered that many sort of land for homes into the market. And I think that's a really good test of whether you really can or can't or have proven yourself to be able to do the job. Yeah, you know, I was only thinking the other day, we, we've delivered over 3,000 not homes, but land for homes that have either been built or are being built at the moment. And we've got, you know, thousands more coming to market soon that are working through the planning process. So when you look at it, you know, I always think, you know, quite a pretty small player in the resi market as a whole. But then when you look at it nationally, that that's still a lot of plots. 
that we've actually got delivered. So I suppose it's just making sure when you're speaking to potential new entrants that are bidding on things, even if they're putting loads of money down to tie the site up, that's great. But that's small beer in comparison to what you're going to get at the end. And what you want to know is, you know, you're not going to burn bridges with the council. You're not going to miss an opportunity potential that this party will actually deliver on getting planning and then fundamentally the land sale and maximizing the value on the land sale, not letting it slip away. And, and, and I think that's the biggest thing that you actually need to test. And then on the other side is that the house builder working with your boss or buying land from you. What makes a good relationship there? I mean, I suppose if a house builder wants to buy a piece of land, you know, it's infinite. So if it's a good site, then they're going to try and buy it, whoever is dealing with it. But certainly we can make a land... sorry, a house builder's life much easier if we've ensured we've done all the technical due diligence made sure they've got all the utilities, they've got capacity and what they need, got a planning consent that's actually deliverable and not just deliverable, something that they want to build. So we haven't gone and agreed to design codes that just aren't viable. Ultimately, a house builder's got to be able to sell houses, haven't they? And they've got to be able to build them in a costly way. So, you know, it's got to be efficient for them. They've got to make a profit. Otherwise, they're not actually going to buy the land so if we haven't been thinking about that when we get the planning consent then it's not going to work so again i think there's probably some promoters that aren't as delivery focused and aren't thinking about you know how is this actually going to work when the house builder gets on site builds out the Mm -hmm. houses from a technical point of view from a market point of view so a promoter that's always got that in their mind i think is great value to a house builder because as i say it's, it's oven ready sites and we've got guys that work for us who've worked previously for house building companies and I think that's really important because it means they've been on both sides of the fence and they know what a house builder is looking for and they know they've they've bought land on behalf of a house builder or they've been on the development side and they know that process and therefore we can make sure that throughout our process we get the ducks in a row. Just finally kind of managing a land promotions company and you know managing the whole business how do you mitigate the risk? I mean, there's big rewards at the end, which means there must be, I don't know, high risk. Massive risk. If you think about it, what we do is an educated gamble, really. We've no control over the ultimate decision. Planning is obviously political. Planning policy can change at any time. Obviously, the market can change, but planning is probably our biggest risk. And it, Mm. you know, it costs a lot of money to get something to tie it up originally often and then to get it through planning. So I suppose, I mean, we we try and spread the risk. So have quite a mixed portfolio, as I mentioned, in, in geography terms. So our spread across, across the country, which helps with any dips in certain market areas. Again, we don't have everything in really high-end places or, or likewise the other way around. So spread that risk. Be prudent in how we forecast. So you know, always expect that things will take longer and cost more than you originally envisaged. So if when you're doing a deal, you're thinking it's probably going to come through in year three, let's say, in cash terms forecast, it's going to come in in year five, because inevitably, there will be delays, things will not be simple, things out of your control come out of the woodwork, always, always happens. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got enough cash to see that through. 
if we're talking, say, like a five-year project, you're not going to see a beam mm. until year five. So you've got to be able to fund all the way through. And that's important, you know, when I talked about things that we're bidding on at the moment, making sure that we're not going crazy. So it, it's getting the balance right. So although we're having to be competitive, of course we are, we, we, we want to grow. And there's a lot of people in the market. So we, we've got to offer competitive terms. But equally, we will not shave our margin too much because you just can't. What we do is is so high risk that it doesn't matter how good you are. Inevitably, at some point, something will go wrong and some project will not come forward. You know, you won't get planning or there'll be a crash in yeah. the market and you can't sell it or whatever. And if you're not making enough money on those good projects to take account for the inevitable bad project, then as a business, it, it just doesn't work. So you need, you know, it's risk and reward. We're taking big risks. So as a result, you need a bigger reward. Otherwise, you know, it just won't work as a business. Um, I suppose it's, you know, have a great team. Make sure you've got a team with the experience to see it through as best you can. Don't be greedy when you're bidding on things. If you don't get it because you can't shave your margin that much, then I suppose you've just got to think, well, good luck to whoever's given it a go because we know that that wouldn't work for us. I suppose always expect delays and be resilient. You know, there's so many projects that you just think are never going to come to an end because it's problem after problem and you, mm. you've got to be patient because you're dealing with, you know, local authorities and third parties, statutory bodies that, you know, things can take a long time. So you've just got to keep seeing it through. And I suppose, you know, fundamentally, don't run out of cash in the meantime, which is not easy. You've got to have a lot of cash as, as a buffer to make sure that, you know, and, and that's something that's massively at the forefront of my mind at the moment as we enter into this growth phase. We've got the cash to do it, and that's great, but we're making sure that everything we forecast is on a very prudent basis so that should things not deliver, we've got plenty of cash to see us through in the meantime. Right. Cash is king. Absolutely. Right. Rachel, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure speaking with you and I'll speak to you again. Yeah, thank likewise. You. Thanks a lot. See you soon. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Discover how to build your UK house builder business and attract the top 15% of leadership talent using one-to-many platforms, automation, and 24-7, 365 proven digital strategies before your competition. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts from the Good to Great series, featuring leading voices from the UK house building industry, from small to medium businesses to leading PLCs. Don't forget to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best content possible. For more information, call 0203 800 1080 or check out www.hc-group.co.uk and book a client or candidate blueprint strategy session.